0: The Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, once approached a uh, young student, a young fellow student of the Magid. And he told him the following. The Alter Rebbe used to sing, used to speak in a sing-song voice. He had a very unique way of talking. The Rebbe once said it's because the Alter Rebbe always behaved in sync with what was happening in the supernal worlds and not because he copied it's not because he was aware and then was copying what was being done upstairs because he was so holy his body automatically behaved in the way that matched the behavior upstairs so the Rebbe said one of the things that expressed this was the way that he would talk and he called over this disciple and he said listen I have a mitzvah of vishinantam levanecha I have a mitzvah to teach my son Torah you have a mitzvah to provide for your family. How about we exchange mitzvahs? I'll give you the money to provide for your family and you teach my son Torah. So the guy said, sure, great deal. And he left. But then afterwards, he came back and he tells the Alte Rebbe, one second, I have a question. Providing for a family is easy to do you know exactly how to do that mitzvah. It's called writing a check and giving it to the other guy. But if I'm going to teach your son Torah, I have to know how to teach. So please teach me how to teach. The Rebbe, in 1956, when he retold this story, he said, this young man was a smart guy. He didn't just go and teach the kid like like he, he went to hear from the Rebbe how to teach. Obviously, this son of the Alt-Rebbe would become later the second Rebbe of Chabad. So he was teaching a Rebbe, a future Rebbe. So the Alter Rebbe says, here's how you teach. The beginning of all learning Torah is the Aleph Bet, the letters. What's an Aleph? And here we know today how the Alter Rebbe sang it because the Rebbe copied it and it was on record. So you can hear it. It went like this. Apintelefun Aibin, Apin telefon unten, dos <laughs> is an aleph. It means a dot above and a dot below. That's an Aleph. And then he explained: Ayud Fun Ayid Fun Unten, Akav Das <laughs> is an Aleph, which means a Yud, the letter Yud, representing God, from above, a Yid, that's the Jew, below, and the line of fear of heaven that connects them. And so he was telling him the beginning of all education is to recognize that it's God above, you below, and the connecting line of the fear of heaven is what creates relationship. And the Rebbe translated it even deeper. Why does the dot represent God and the dot represent the Jew? Because the way to connect is only through an infinitesimal point. God is so much more than we could ever comprehend Him to be. The part of Hashem that's accessible is like so minuscule like a yud. It's so small like a small dot. For the Jew to appreciate God, you have to also make yourself very minuscule, humble yourself. You can't come with your whole ego and think you're going to get everything. And then the line of fear of heaven, the line of faith, trusting faith, that's the secret to education. And multiple times Rebbe would repeat the story in different contexts, each time bringing out how the Aleph is the basis of all of Judaism, which is why the first letter ever uttered by Hashem at mass revelation was an Aleph. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, the first letter of Anochi is an Aleph. Because everything is there, the secret to all of the cosmos, and all of Judaism, and all of Torah is in the Aleph. That's one story. Second story I wanna start with tonight. Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, the Ruzhin Rebbe. So the Ruzhin Rebbe, when he was a kid, his teacher was trying to teach him how to read. Now, we just dive in Mincha, so you notice in the Siddur um, two Yuds represent Hashem's name. Even though in the Torah, Hashem's name is never spelled with two Yuds, but that's the way in print it's abbreviated. For, for Yud, Yud, you pronounce it as Hashem's name. So his teacher was trying to teach him that. Now, if you've ever seen old printed books, the calligraphy wasn't so fancy as it, was, as it is today. So yuds were simply dots. They just appeared as dots of ink on the page. So his teacher said to him, here's the code. Yisrael, you're little, I want to teach you how to read. Whenever you see two dots next to each other, that's Hashem's name. Now kids, take things literally. If you've ever seen a chumash, at the end of a verse, there's also two dots one on top of the other though it's different than the two dots like this it's one on top of the other it's it's a grammatical punctuation thing colon colon. Colon. thank you so what started to happen was he would come home and practice his reading and he would read the verse and it would come to two dots and he would say Hashem's name but then at the end of every verse he was saying Hashem Hashem because he thought that the two dots dots. were also Hashem's name and his father couldn't understand what's going on. He says, Yisrael, why do you keep saying Hashem at every verse? And he said, What do you mean? That's what my teacher taught me. So your teacher taught me. And basically, he figured out the confusion that it was this two dots and not those two dots. And he said, Yisrael, I want to teach you something. The two dots, how come two dots are a code for Hashem? Because the two dots represent two Jewish souls. He says, if the two dots are aligned, one next to each other, that's the key that unlocks Hashem. But as soon as one Jew thinks he's on top of the other Jew, and the two dots are not aligning, but instead one person thinks he's bigger or the other person thinks he's smaller above and below, that's not Hashem. You bring Hashem into your life when you have unity. So, why, why am I saying these stories tonight? Unlike any other language, in Hebrew, Letters have inherent holiness, an inherent meaning. So, in English, an A means nothing, and a B means nothing, and a C means nothing. Once you put it into a word, now the letters take on a meaning. But in Hebrew, the letter Aleph has a meaning. The letter Bet has a meaning, and so on and so forth. You know, the biggest example of this is typically we are used to associating... Hashem's creation with speech. Talked about this at length last week. Hashem spoke the world into being. Ten utterances, ten sentences. But in Kabbalah, when you look at it, the way it's described is letters. We don't say that Hashem created the world with sentences. We say Hashem created the world with 22 letters. And the reason for that is is because the way it works is that each letter carries an energy. It's hinted to in the shape of the letter. You know, the Yod on top, the Yod on bottom, the line in the middle, Bet is three lines, Gimel. Each letter has a unique, distinct shape that lets us know the energy that it's carrying. And then, certainly when you attach multiple letters and it forms a word, now there's an additional energy that's introduced. So you have... um, classic, the Hasidic word that's always used is Baruch, which means blessed or bring down. So you have a Bet, you have a Resh, you have a Vav, and you have a Chaf. So it's not just that when they come together they have an energy. It's each one on their own has an energy, and then you bring them together and now there's a fifth energy that's introduced, the all-encompassing energy of the word. I guess the English parallel for this would be the difference between words and sentences. If you have individual words, each word carries a meaning. Then when you construct a sentence out of multiple words, now there's a new meaning. Not just, not just the individual meaning, but the individual meaning of the words join to make a sentence. So just like in English, words combine to sentences and then the words create with the sentence a new energy, so too it is with Hebrew. By the way, in, in English also, it's not just the different words. Even the tone could be, you could use the same exact words, but with a different tone, the words have a different meaning. Right? If, like if I said, call me Chaim, or I said, call me Chaim, two different meanings. All right, call me Chaim is me saying what my name should be, and call me Chaim means I'm speaking to Chaim and I'm telling him to call me. You change your word around in a sentence and you can change the entire meaning. And if your name is Chaim and you're talking to Chaim, it's a whole bunch. Well, then, yeah. <clears throat> it's just as clear as Toma if <laughs> you said only he could count or you said he could only count two things so each word has its own identity and then in the sentence it has a larger identity and in the same way we talk about in creation in Kabbalah that each letter carries a chayut, a vivification an animation a force a creative force and then when you combine the, word, the letters and you make a word a new thing is introduced and it's these combinations of letters that created every single thing in this universe. In the Genesis narrative, we're told of what's called the primary beings. Light, dark, water, vegetation, you know, planets, etc. But the truth is that every single individual creature was created in those moments of creation. And like we went way back in chapter 1 of this book, it's constantly being created. Hashem is constantly uttering these words that create everything. But how does that actually work? If in the Torah we only have a certain amount of verses dedicated to creation, where did everything else come from? So here the Zohar tells us that it happens by means of the Hebrew words are tzirufim, chilufim, tmurot. Which means combinations, exchanges, conjunctions. I guess would be the loose translations. Hebrew letters can be manipulated in many ways. I'm sure you guys have heard of the concept of gematria, how every letter has a numerical value. So in the same way, different letters can be grouped in different ways that allow them to be substituted for each other. So for example, one classic Kabbalistic uh, substitution method is based on where the letters come from in your mouth. Certain letters use your lips. If you think about it, every bet, a vav, a mem, and a peh, those use your lips. Aleph, chet, hey, and ayin, they come from way down there in the throat. Some letters use your palate, some letters use your teeth. So Kabbalah says that all the letters that come from the lips can be substituted. You can change a bet for a feh sometimes if you need to. Here's another way. If you take the 22 letters of the aleph bet and you line them up, and then you fold them. So you have Aleph till Taf, and then you fold them, and you have two lines of 11. The Aleph corresponds to the Taf, the Bet corresponds to the Shin, Gimel to the Resh, etc. That's another method of substitution. Sometimes an Aleph will be substituted for a Taf. So just because you see the word in the Torah, or, let's say, which means light, Aleph, Vav, and Resh, but if you use these different methods of combinations and exchanges, you could come up with a whole different creation hinted to in that word. Such that if you manipulated the words that Hashem said in the beginning of creation in the right ways, you could reach every single individual creation in the world. That's the process by which, by which it happens. So, the result of this short analysis in the Alter Ebbe's words in this chapter 12, the last of, the, of book 2 of the Tanya, is that while we begin with a very limited amount of letters, because we know it's only 22. That's, that's it. This seemingly finite number produces infinity. An incredibly numerous amount of creations. The Altair kind of lines it up. He says, first, um, first the letters created different categories in creation, like different kingdoms, the human kingdom, the animal kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, mineral kingdom. Then each kingdom has multiple categories. So if you had the vegetation kingdom, right, so you're dealing with grass, you're dealing with trees, you're dealing with flowers, you're dealing with plants, general categories. And then each category has got its individual species. And then each species has its individual replicas. So if we took trees as a category, it's a category within the vegetation kingdom. And then we said, there's all kinds of trees. There's fruit-bearing trees and non-fruit-bearing trees. And in those trees, there's different types of trees. But then let's say in oak trees themselves, you have millions of oak trees, and each individual tree can be traced back to a certain combination and manipulation of the letters that were uttered in the beginning of creation. Yeah. So would then, so the entirety of the world and the universe was includes all 22 utterances, but every other thing... Is a combination; it has to be within those. It has to be twenty-two, but it's each each one is a different, unique combination. Exactly that. Okay. Exactly, so it all traces itself back to twenty-two letters, ten sentences. Okay. In, in the Tanya, Darcher goes with a very specific example. He goes with the with the heavens. And on Monday, it says Yihirakia. Hashem said, "Let there be a firmament that will divide between the higher and lower waters." Okay. That's just one statement. Now, in the Gemara, we're told that there are seven heavens that each have an individual function. You know, one contains the Jerusalem on high, the altar on high, the Hamikdash. One is where snow comes from and hail. One is where there's angels. One is where the manna was ground. These are all expressions in the Talmud referring to mystical deep ideas. But the idea that all these heavens came from that one statement of Yehirakiyah. Which means, as the Altar Rebbe puts it out there, that you start with an all-encompassing sentence, that sentence creates the all-encompassing firmament. And then it filters down by virtue of the manipulations and the exchanges into individual creations. One more piece to the puzzle before I explain why we're talking about this tonight. Even though every single creation can ultimately be traced back to the Asarama Amaro, to the those original letters that God uttered. <coughs> there is a difference between those creations mentioned in the Torah and those that had to be derived from within those letters. And the Alter Rebbe illustrates it with the difference between sunlight and moonlight. The sun is a globe a luminary that emits its own light. The moon doesn't have its own light. The moon is a reflector. It reflects the sun's light. That's the physics. Uh, <clears throat> you have it in physics. Yes. I wouldn't know, but I'm glad that the scientist knows. At least, at least somebody. Uh... So, what is the relationship of the Earth, says the alteraba Rebbe, to sunlight versus moonlight? When we experience sunlight, we're experiencing direct. Revelation. When we experience moonlight, we're experiencing indirect revelation, or what he calls a or shel haor, a light of the light. Kind of like hearing something first hand or second hand. Right, when you get to relate directly with the source or it's going round about. What happens when you go round about is that something gets lost in translation. That's the nature of it. If you don't get it directly from the source, things get lost. I can't tell you how many times you know, people tell stories of the Rebbe. The Rebbe was a great man and so many miracle stories. But then when you listen, or you watch the videos, people tend to, <laughs> to make things up in their heads. They translated it somehow. And then when you're hearing it second, third hand, it's like, thank God we have the original videos and recordings so you can actually see what exactly was said and what exactly was not said. That's the nature of memory. Memory edits things. We, we, we do that. So the Altar Rebbe says it's the same thing in the letters that are in the Torah versus the creations that were derived from the Torah. How much is Hashem present in the creation depends on where its creation source is derived. Those things that are directly in the Torah... Hashem is much more apparent in them. His energy is much more apparent in them. There's less, to use a classic word that we've used in these classes, there's less tzimtzum. There's less contraction. The further and further you get from the original Torah, the less and less godliness is apparent in them. Which is why the Jerusalem Talmud makes an observation and says, "Tzvah HaShamayim, the heavenly hosts, Kayamim bi'ish, exist by man. Which means, the very... Things that were created in the six days of creation, stay. Tzvah ha'aretz, things on earth, kayamim bemin. They only exist by species, which means everything has to reproduce. There's never been a new sun since creation of the world or a new moon. But people, plants, have always been reproducing and changing. Trees will always be there. Humans will always be there. But the species, not the individual... Why is that? So Chassidus explains, it's because of how close you are to Hashem. So to speak, the heavenly hosts are more spiritual, more sublime, they get more longevity. The earth is distant, further, and hence less infinite. So this this is the conversation. All of creation happens through letters, although we see it as words. Fundamentally, it's 22 letters that have 22 energies. The letters in the Torah created the primary creations that have the most godliness apparent in them. Everything else is a derivative and therefore has a watered down or filtered down version of godliness. And that's the secret of the makeup of this world. Now, how does this tie into the conversation in Book Two of the Tanya? So first, I want to say, very interestingly, in early prints, of the Tanya. At the end of chapter 12 of Book 2, they had the word there, chaser, which means incomplete or missing. It was basically thought that the Alter Rebbe didn't complete this manuscript, this treatise. And it is, when you read it in the Hebrew, you see it's, it's missing the, um, the epilogue, kind of like, you know, the conclusion. But when Rabbi Weinberg, who I think I mentioned a couple of times, gave those shiurim, those Tanya classes on the radio, and the Rebbe edited his transcripts of his classes, The Rebbe helped him kind of tie the knots together. What is the overarching point of this chapter in the context of of Book 2, which is about the unity of God? Says the Rebbe now, I'm paraphrasing, a handwritten note that he wrote on the side of the paper, when you appreciate that all of the diversity of creation can essentially be boiled down to 22 letters What you gain is a renewed appreciation for the harmony and the unity that exists within creation, and hence the harmony and unity that exists between creation and Hashem. In other words, remember that example from a couple of weeks ago about the kid trying to learn one plus one, and first he does it with two cups, then he does it with two apples, then he does it with two caps, but it takes a maturity to realize that one plus one is a fundamental rule that expresses itself in multiple ways. It's only that in first grade the kid couldn't see that, but in second grade he could. As your brain expands, more and more ideas can become more cohesive and cooperative. We observe diversity because we're first graders. We can't see the elemental, godly core of everything. So we say, wow, there's so much. There's so many objects, so many people, so many creatures. But the truth is it's all 22 letters. It's all unity. When you see it from that perspective, you can actually help yourself elevate your perspective on the world. It makes them truer. It makes everything closer to God. It makes everything more part of the unity. And over the last five chapters of this book, the Altar Rebbe sets out to explain how more and more things are encompassed by the unity of God. When we say God is a simple, plain, non-composite unity, it it encompasses His character traits, it encompasses His light, it encompasses His attributes, it encompasses even His words. They all get into the bowl. They all become part of the Ahdut. Why? Because that's the true way to look at it. When you boil it down, it's all one core. I, I remember telling this story uh, maybe a year ago now. There was a city in Russia called Dvinsk. And there were two rabbis, two great rabbis in the city. One was a rabbi of the Hasidim and one was a rabbi of the Misnagdim. There was two communities. They're famously known today. One was Rabbi Yosef Rosen, who's known as the, the genius of Rogachev, the Rogachev are and One was the Or Sameach. All the yeshivas in Israel named the Or Sameach, they named for him. Rabbi Meir Simcha Cohen of Dvinsk. Now physically, um, the Rogachev was very small. The Or Sameach was broad-built, he was tall. But in spiritual stature, the Rogachev definitely... Paralleled his contemporary, if not more. So they tell the story that there was one time in shul, a couple of chassidim and misnagdim got together and they were talking about which rabbi is greater. That is greser. And Giddush you say, Who, who's greser? Who's greater? Now in Giddush, the word for greater also means bigger. So they're arguing, One say, no, the Chaver is greater. One's saying, no, the Raghachavah is greater. And there was a kid listening to the conversation and he comes over and he says, you guys are just... Having a meaningless argument. Like, don't, can't you see who's bigger? The <laughs> Ur is bigger than the, the Ragat So The adult said, Yingele, yingele. You don't understand. We're talking about a different type of greatness. So he says, aha. Now you're making up stuff. <laughs> now you're getting complicated. To the kid, the word bigger was the obvious when you say bigger you, you mean in size wait you mean spiritual greatness now nah, now you're saying pshetlach. to the adults the opposite was true the first apparent measure of greatness was spiritual stature when i talking about physical size and weight that's like a different conversation it's a matter of perspective the more we get in tune to the fundamental unity that's apparent within creation, the more we get in tune to the unity of God as a whole, encompassing more and more of what we perceive to be outside of Him. So essentially, by drilling in and hammering home this idea of all of creation being letters and all of creation being manipulations and derivatives of certain letters, what we're basically trying to say is, see the unity for what it is. See the achdut for its ultimate level. See how no matter how different things look, they're all the same. There was a wonderful talk that the, that the Rebbe gave. The Rebbe was always the first to embrace new uh, technological or scientific advances. And he once gave a talk dedicated to the power of the radio. And he said that um, said Chassidus came to reveal how much Hashem is one, and how much Hashem's oneness encompasses, and how when you see detail, detail is not a is not a um, expression of limitation; it's an expression of infinity. That's what Hasidus wants you to see, and he says because we're getting closer to the time of Mashiach, when that oneness is going to be apparent, that's why Hashem allowed for science to begin discovering how much everything shares in common with each other. We used to think there's a hundred million elements that are at the core of the world. Then we narrowed it down. Then we narrowed it down, and even more narrower, and less and less elements. And then we come to you know matter, antimatter, positive and negative. It's all four things. like Kabbalah says you know four elements at the core. And then we get even further, and it's all one thing. What's the point? What's the spiritual parallel of all these discoveries? It's to help us see how even the microscope can appreciate that everything is one. So certainly we can appreciate in the context of our relationship with Hashem that everything is one. And there's a final point which the Rebbe makes on the theme that I mentioned I think two weeks ago, the difference between a truth and a lie. And when a lie gets exposed, it vanishes. When a truth gets exposed, it gets elevated. So long as your perspective on the world is that of detachment from God, so all you can hope for from the world is to vanish. What's gonna happen when truth will be revealed? When Mashiach will come? When everybody will see how it really is? So one would have to contend that reality as I see it will disappear, because it's all one big lie. It's all just perception, it's all just an illusion. It's all false, it's all fake, removed from God. But if you study book two of the Tanya and you come to appreciate level after level, layer after layer, how much everything is one with Hashem. So if Hashem is true, then everything that comes along with him is true. And if everything that comes along with him is true, then when it gets revealed, everything gets lifted. And instead of reality disappearing, the world with everything in it continues to exist and becomes godly. And that's why in Jewish law we believe that the ultimate version of this world is a physical one. The Rambam in his code of Jewish law famously writes that the ultimate world is a spiritual world. But the way Hasidus sees it is that the end of all days is the resurrection of the dead. We come back to the physical universe. We come back to observe Hashem's Torah and mitzvahs in the physical world. Why? Because this is the greatest expression of God's unity. And in fact, the reason that Hashem made all these steps is because He wants that relationship with us. He wants to be close to us, so He let Himself be known, and let Himself be more known, and let Himself become what looks like more mundane, and more mundane, and more distant, and more distant. But the point of it all is to suck us back into that unity, into that pool of oneness, into that purity of Hashemliness, where we can truly say, Hashem echad, ushmo echad, that Hashem is one, and His name is one. Freien.